and welcome to episode 100 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone else who likes going out under the stars. And in full disclosure, I meant to have a little bit of a pause there, but then I lost my uh, page, <laughs> my notes, so it ended up being- I had 9-1 dialed on my phone because I thought you were having a stroke. <laughs> so how was your week, Shane? <laughs> uh, I had a pretty good week. Um, good. Yeah, it was good. You know, it's warming up. It's Spring is in the air. Uh, I'm loving it. So it's a little yeah. easier to get outside and enjoy some, some sunlight and some fresh air. Yeah. How, how was your yeah, week? And- yeah, good. Just starting to pick up the parts of my neighbor's roof that are that are in my yard from that that windstorm we had of <laughs> 190 kilometers an hour, whatever it was that blew through back in January. There's like this giant piece that's in my neighbor's yard, and it it actually we we can't figure out what it is. It looks like uh, well, it's a segment about two feet wide by about four feet long, and it looks like it's bricks. <laughs> like oh oh some. Up? Some of that fake stacked stone plastic stuff, maybe? I think so. Yeah, I think somebody yeah. lost it from from somewhere. But how, like, because that stuff, I don't believe, is overly light anyway. And, and it's it's nowhere near where, wherever that originated from. That came a long way. So. Well, put, put an ad on Kijiji, found <laughs> some siding. <laughs> Your bricks blew away. That's how windy it was. All right. So we started this just... Oh, well, I guess we didn't start this, but just over a year ago, you were a guest speaker at uh, at my astronomy class where you're a frequent guest speaker, and yeah. uh, we chatted about uh, rebooting the podcast. Actually, you said that you were going, you were thinking about doing a podcast, and you yep. were just asking me a few questions about it. And I said, hey, I, and I had, I'd actually kind of been sort of thinking about the same thing, probably for far too long and not doing anything on it. And I said, I'd love to do another one. I just don't want to do um, as much work. Like I like the first one was just way, way too much work. And then now we are 100. This will be 100 episodes later since yeah. uh, that conversation about a year ago. Yeah, pretty wild. It went by fast. Um, yeah. You know, we've said many times that we never knew kind of what would happen with this thing if we would do 10 episodes and quit or what but uh here we are um and i guess uh, there's no plan to stop we'll we'll keep trucking along here yeah um you know one thing we did talk about and we haven't really made a decision on is you know do we take a little bit of a break you know just to to recuperate or recharge the batteries a little bit or do we slow the cadence down or do we pick up the cadence you know there's there's a lot of options for us and you know, just like most of this is unscripted, we'll sort of figure it out as we go along, I guess, what, uh, what we'll do. Yeah. And, and I see that we're, we're, where we are, we're kind of scheduled to be vaccinated in about two months time ish, I think, although mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that could vary. So I was thinking, um, we'll, we'll probably keep this cadence of, of at least two a week up until, uh, up until that point, then maybe we'll do one a week or something like that. But uh, see what'll happen at that point, dear listeners, is we will probably be observing more. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, that's at least the I, hope, right? I was thinking about this last night. Yeah, and I was thinking about it last night because you, I think you were out observing in your yard, and uh, my yard is well. Not only is it full of parts from my neighbors' homes, 
um, it gets very wet in my yard and uh, there's a lot of light. So when it's dry um, and it's clear and the planets are up, it's a great spot because I can see I can see the whole sky pretty much. But uh, but there's just lights everywhere because I live in a city. Um, but uh, but anyway, so usually I would go to to darker skies and that sort of thing. And uh, anyway, the, the hospital numbers are starting to come down because I thought, well, all I need to do is roll my car and break my arm like I think happened to you once. And, you know, then you're showing up at the hospital and they're like, well, what were you doing? Well, I was driving around the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, like, why are you doing that during a pandemic? Right. Like, come on, guy. You know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and so typically uh, doctors and nurses and, and those uh, folks wouldn't say that. But I know the ones that work at our emergency room, not because I visit there frequently, but through astronomy, they're all into astronomy. So they're really going to give me the irons if I show up down there. Hmm. So that won't be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I'm hoping now with the warm weather too, we can get out a little bit, even if it's just short drives outside of the city and uh, get, get some observing in. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, last night was clear. Did, did you get out and did you use your marked up map or chart? Should... <laughs> yes. Uh, last night was clear. I did get out. Um, seeing wasn't very good. Uh, the wind was, was pretty high actually. I think it was about 20, 25 kilometers per hour when I started. And then when I ended, um, I think it was, a it was around 30 to 35 kilometers per hour. Um, so, you know, when you have a wind like that, that usually makes seeing not so good. Um, but the sky was really transparent. Um, like it was a really black sky. Um, and, and the stars as a result really had some nice contrast or really popped. Um, so I did get out and I did use a marked up pocket sky atlas. Um, so, you know, a, a couple episodes ago, Chris, you mentioned with your web project, uh, that you were, you put a bunch of sticky notes or post-its in your atlas, um, mm. just to point out the objects that you want to observe. And, and you mentioned, you know, this would, um, you know, save you some time at the eyepiece because now you're not searching your atlas for where, you know, that particular object was or is, um, you just would look at, you know, where your note was pointing and then away you went. And, yeah. uh, so I thought I'd give that a try. How did it go? Incredible. Incredible. Oh, really? Like, I was, I, you know, I, at first I was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I didn't realize how much I would enjoy it. And um, now, now there's two reasons that I, I'll talk about here. First of all, when I was prepping this, um, so, you know, I'm indoors, uh, I was prepping for some double star observing. So I grabbed the RASC uh, double star list that they recently put out. Yep. And uh, one of the stars that I was going to look at was... Um, uh, it's in Canis Major, HR 2764. Uh, it's known as Winter Elbirio. Oh. And I thought, oh, that sounds really neat because Elbirio, summer Elbirio in Cygnus is quite, you know, pretty. Two, uh, two different colored stars, a blue and an orange. Uh, so I thought I will definitely try for this one. So the neat thing about this Rask list is it gives you the Pocket Sky Atlas chart number. So this one was chart number 27. So I flip to that page, I use the coordinates to locate HR 2764, and lo and behold, it is not on the page. I can't find it anywhere. Oh, no. So what I did, 
um, like a lot of these stars, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, depending on the catalog, uh, have a lot of different designations. Yeah. So I went to Sky Safari because uh, in, in that app or in that software, it'll list a, like every catalog entry for that particular object. So yeah. I searched for HR2764, and it's also known as H3945, which does appear in the Pocket Sky Atlas. So had I not done this you know, prep, preparation work uh, before going out, I would have been probably spending some time looking for this HR2764, only I would never find it because it's not actually labeled that way in the Pocket Sky Atlas. Right. Um, so that's reason number one that I thought this is just a great way to observe, not saying that that kind of uh, scenario will happen often, but it can happen. And this is a great way to mitigate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and that was just, one. It's also, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 carry on. I was just going to say, it's also like kind of a, cause when, when you're inside, it's that, that part of the work is is kind of fun. Like you're sort of tooling around with your software and your charts and maybe some books and stuff like that. And, uh, and that's kind of uh, more enjoyable inside, but outside that experience is, is not enjoyable. <laughs> like, no, no, it's where awful. Is it, where is it on this page? Like that's, that's honestly my least favorite part of, of observing. It's just trying to find it on the charts in the dark like that. Like yeah. that's, that's super, super tough. So um, yeah. if you can do that in inside and the comfort of a nice warm house and then you get out. And then, then honestly, when you go out, you're just star hopping and observing. And it's kind of like about a third of the work is done. If, if a third of it at least is, is finding it on the charts and then going back and forth. And then sometimes, you know, you pinpoint where it is on the chart and then you go back to the telescope, then you come back to the chart and you're like, now where was it? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. You're like oh, got to find it all over again. Right. So it's kind of like you, you take, um, I think that the hardest and the least enjoyable work out of the, the observing. And then it's just like, there it is. And then uh, to the telescope, back to the chart and then, you know, make, makes it much better. Yeah. I've, I used to do that a lot more when I started, I, I used to do that. And uh, that, that's how I destroyed my first sky Atlas 2000. Cause I just wrote on the pages. Yeah. Forget that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It, you know, it saves so much of the effort or there was sort of the, the not so fun work outside. Um, and, and it just made observing so much more, um, I don't know, it was just funner because all I would do is look at my arrow, look up at the sky and move the telescope um, as opposed to spending time with a red light, you know, uh, like trying to find the object. And even though red light is better for your night vision, it's still not, you, you, you still don't want any light really, yeah. you know, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to maintain your dark adaptation. Yeah. Um, and then I also find like reading a star chart under a red light does like fatigue my eyes a bit, you know, it does strain them. So I kind of felt like last night I actually, uh, like had a little more staying power at the telescope because mm -hmm. I wasn't straining my eyes so much on the, the bloody star charts. So, uh, yeah. I love it. My, I, I sent a tweet out, um, that my new favorite astronomy accessory is the arrow post-it notes <laughs> who, who would have known, but, yeah. uh, yeah, they worked awesome. I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. 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 Cool. So anyway, last, yeah, yeah, last night it was a double star night. Um, so, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, winter Alberio uh, in Canis major was a little bit too low for me to really have a good view. And because, because the seeing wasn't good and because it is quite low on the horizon, um, 
you know, I, I observed it, but I'm not going to really log in observation because the quality was just quite poor. Um, so I went higher in the sky uh, to Gemini. And I think we'll talk about Gemini here in episode 101 a little bit more. But mm-hmm. um, I did observe the double star uh, McBuddha uh, is the named one. And mm-hmm. it's just, uh, th- th- it's quite wide separation. I think that that's probably a binocular bino uh, quite easily. And and maybe even a naked eye by, or a, a, a double um, under a dark sky. Maybe I'd have to check the magnitude. Um, but anyway, uh, very easy split. You know, nothing too spectacular. I think there's a little bit of a color difference. One looked a little orangish. Uh, the other, uh, the primary looked a little orangey. The secondary, I believe, was a little bit whiter in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. And then I moved down to, which one was this here? Uh, HD 51502. And this was wicked. This was so cool. Okay. Um, it was, it forms a triangle. Like it, it's, it's three stars. Um, there's a little bit of coloring there. I felt like there was some bluish in a couple of the stars. Um, but it's just such a, like, as you're panning across, like I started at, um, oh geez, I don't know what that designation is. Uh, it's it. So in Gemini, one of the bright stars is Elhina, and then I guess it would be southwest of Elhina is another primary star. And uh, if you just kind of keep panning north uh, northwest from there, you hit uh, HD five one five zero two. But this triangle uh, just pops out at you, um, like you can't miss it. And uh, very very cool uh, gathering or star system um yeah it was fun and and part of my observing last night was i wanted to test out my new uh, tmb 25 millimeter uh, orthoscopic which uh, is a really really good eyepiece i was quite uh, impressed with the crispness and the uh, clarity of that uh, very comfortable to use as well with the eye relief and and uh, everything else about it it's fairly light um but I also wanted to test out uh, two weird 40 millimeter eyepieces that I have. Um, I think I mentioned that I have that 40 millimeter Pentex Kellner. Um, and I also have a 40 millimeter Takahashi Ortho. And I thought there's no need to have both of these eyepieces. So I, I did a lot of back and forth with them. Mm-hmm. And um, they're very similar. Um, those Tac Orthos, though they just produce such a like stark contrast to blacks and whites. It's, it's really quite phenomenal. And that's across the whole line, not just the 40 millimeter. Um, But the, uh, the Pentax is just so much lighter and I felt it was a little more comfortable to use that. I kind of settled on that one, but what was interesting. So those two eyepieces produce a fairly similar field of view to the 24 millimeter uh, Teleview Panoptic. And, um, when I was looking at that, uh, triangle, you know, star system in Gemini, um, I, I first found it with the panoptic and, you know, it was quite pretty. Uh, then I put in the 25 millimeter TMB ortho and there's another, there's a 10.3 magnitude star, like right beside this triangle that all of a sudden just popped out with the ortho. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like I didn't notice that with the panoptic. So I went back to the panoptic. And now knowing that it was there, I could kind of tease it out, but it was nowhere near as apparent as it was in the TMB ortho. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was also interesting when I was using the Kellner as well as that uh, 40 millimeter ortho, 
that star was still, I felt more easily visible in those eyepieces than it was in the 25 or sorry, the 24 millimeter panoptic. Um, so this is, uh, this is part of like my, one of my observing projects this year is, is, uh, the impacts of minimal glass on deep sky objects versus, you know, complex glass, like a, a multi-element eyepiece, like the panoptic. Mm. Um, so this was like, this was unplanned, you know, like that faint star just sort of happened to be there while I was observing and happened to be more noticeable in these simpler eyepieces. But I'm, I'm more curious about, you know, the impacts of complex versus simple on, you know, nebulas and galaxies and, you know, sort of the fainter objects that show extension. And, and I think that'll be a truer test to see, um, you know, if, if one eyepiece is more favorable over the other. Cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. It's kind of something I've always been interested in as well. Um, yeah. Like the one thing I find with some of the um, simpler eyepieces is the, the eye relief can be uh, challenging. So I do, it just depends. Like I find sometimes if, if the eyepiece is more comfortable to look through, I can make more and better and deeper observations, even if kind of on first blush, I might see better contrast or light throughput on the, on the simpler eyepieces. But, uh, but anyway, that's why I have the Pentax uh, XWs. Cause I think they're, they're kind of like the, uh, the porridge that Goldilocks ate, right? <laughs> yeah. Did you see recently on uh, Cloudy Nights, there was a comparison of the uh, Nikon Nav SW 7mm no. and the Pentax XW 7mm? No, I didn't uh, I didn't see that. No, tell me about it just briefly. Yeah. So this person, I forget what telescope they were using. I think it was a fairly high end, like, a, you know, maybe astrophysics or something like that. Um, and he went back and forth with these two eyepieces and, you know, the short version of this story is, is he really, really likes the Nikon. Yeah. Um, he said the only thing that the Pentex succeeded it in was brightness, mm. but it was subtle. And he said the Nikon beat it on contrast, on clarity, on comfort. Um, and also it's much lighter. Um, so he yeah. was, he was really touting the Nikon as, you know, one of the better seven millimeters or maybe the best seven millimeter he's looked through. Um, so he was excited. I think he was getting the 10 millimeter Nikon as well as the five. Um, yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. And you know, and, and I really like the Pentaxes, like they were sort of like my ultimate set for a long time. That said, when I was, when I was buying them, which was around the time when they switched from the XLs, which were a 65 degree eyepiece to the XWs, which are a 70 degree eyepiece. Um, I had, I had, uh, seen on the, on the internet and sort of the backwaters of the internet where people were, and, and I think you've done this as well, getting some of the spotting scope uh, Nikons and converting those to, uh, to telescopic eyepieces and yep. people seeing how, how great these, these are, which, uh, which having, having used the Nikon nav that, that you had for quite a long time, probably longer than you wish I had it last summer. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I, I thought it was so good. And, um, yeah, I was, I was really surprised how much I liked that eyepiece because I had essentially read through everybody's reports and, you know, reports are just simply that people's, people's personal experiences. And, uh, we have our own, um, about how it, it, the Nikon navs maybe were just a little bit behind the Pentax XWs, uh, and they're, you know, they, they're going to run you at least in Canadian about a hundred bucks more. 
but the big the big thing I think that those reviewers were ignoring is if you're like me and you have almost an entire set of XWs, I'm only missing two. I don't have the 30 and I, and I don't have the five. I have all the others. Um, is you have a really heavy bag because I forget what they weigh, but they're super heavy. I mean, the, I, have, I have the 40, it weighs uh, just over two pounds. And I think most of the other ones weigh like a pound or a pound and a half. I think the lightest one is probably a pound. And then like the three and a half is, is probably even getting close to maybe two pounds. It's, it's, it's taller than the 40. It's not quite as big around, but that they're very, very heavy. So when I go, when we go dark sky observing, I don't take them all. I just take uh, the 40. Sometimes I take my old 30, which is just a modified Erfel. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll pick the two that I think I'm going to use the most. And that's it, you know, and then it's kind of a shame, right? So mm-hmm. I, I've been thinking about getting the Nikon 10, uh, 7, and, uh, and 5 for, for when, when we're going out, sort of like a home and away team, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I was kind of surprised. Um, but basically with, with the nav, yeah, I kind of agree. Maybe, maybe it's not quite as bright. But I get a lot more light with an eyepiece that I've actually taken with me, right? Like I threw that in my kit as just like an extra eyepiece because mm-hmm. it's so small and light. It was just like almost like not putting another eyepiece in my case at all. And so that makes it, that kind of puts it a little bit over the edge for me. And then I have a five millimeter Pentax XO, which has the greatest contrast, brightness, light throughput if, if I need that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I have a variety mm-hmm. of other eyepieces, but, uh, anyway, yeah. um, yeah, eventually I kind of hope to own those three and I have the, uh, the one that, that I've taken with me, but used the least, and I'm a little bit disappointed myself for this is the, is the doctor 12 and a half. I'm kind of hoping this summer I get, I get more use out of that, but, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Sometimes when I start observing, I just, you know, I'm not as interested in, in buying eyepieces or anything because I'm just observing and I, I mm-hmm. kind of get lost in, in the observing process versus, um, you know, what eyepieces I might, might like to have. Although uh, I think I was telling you this, I, I do need two things, not need, but I, I probably should get them is uh, I think I need a, a better wood tripod for the, uh, for the uh, AZ GTI uh, Altaz mount when the 100 is on it, when we're when we're on the road. And then the other thing I'm real, I really want to do is get a better finder scope. That definitely is, right. uh, is at the top of my list just for the stuff that I'm doing. I think uh, having a good finder is, uh, is, you know, getting more and more of a, of a priority. So, yeah, especially since like I have the Amici prism, which is the correct image prism. I just need the, uh, the tube. Anyway, I think I talked about the finder last week, so I won't, I won't go into that anymore. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. We have an observation. Somebody sent us an observation. Yeah. Yeah. Clark sent an interesting observation about the zodiacal light. Um, yeah. So let me say, said, this. let me say this first. And then maybe you yeah. can, is that Clark and I are good friends. So people should know that we go, we go back a dozen or more years anyway, anyway. Um, so anyway, with, with that and sort of it's timely because there was a NASA announcement recently about the zodiacal light. But anyway, yes, please go ahead and read it, Shane. Sure. So this is from Clark. Um, On March 7th, I made a special trip on that clear evening to try and observe the zodiacal light from an old observing spot. Uh, Southern Ontario has a scattering of small towns that make finding a very good horizon tricky. 
Uh, I drove about 45 minutes west of my home to the Moncton Observing Site. Moncton with a K. Um, this site was discovered by Chris maybe more than 10 years ago. It is actually now marked on Google Maps. Uh, the concrete pad that marks the official site is on the end of an unmaintained gravel road. Uh, so being early March, I had to park at the side of the quiet road adjacent to it. Uh, another fellow was already there imaging. I arrived about one hour after sunset, waiting for the last remnants of twilight to disappear. The sky was very good. Uh, when it was dark, I saw no semblance of the zodiacal light and decided to explore the sky with binoculars. Um, about 10 minutes later, uh, there was a haze of light in the right place. Uh, it improved just enough to confirm the sighting. Uh, from the western horizon, the band narrowed just south of the brightest stars in Aries before thinning more and finally disappearing a few degrees below Mars in the Pleiades. The zodiacal light had made a modest appearance for about half an hour when it decidedly dimmed again back to almost untraceable. Uh, the zodiacal light fascinates me. Uh, it has been known since antiquity, yet very few people are aware of what it is outside of the astronomy community. There are virtually no references to this phenomenon in pop culture. Many seasoned amateurs have never seen it, uh, especially those living in high northern latitudes. It is, haunt it is a hauntingly beautiful sight. My attempts to photograph it turned out poorly. Uh, it was one of those Loch Ness monster shots with something there in the image, uh, but, was, uh, but distinctly and deliberately vague. Uh, next time I'll need to drive a little further. Uh, so very cool observation by Clark. Thank you for submitting that. Um, and, and Chris, you sent an interesting link uh, about a new NASA discovery, I guess, regarding the zodiacal light. Yeah, there was, it was sort of uh, timely. And, and, in, and in fact, I'd sent you this link because, because I'd received the NASA email and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like I, yeah. I sign up for these NASA emails and I probably only read a fraction that come in. And then a lot of the time it's, it's just, uh, honestly, it's all good material. So don't get me wrong. But a lot of the time, it's just stuff that I'm personally just not that interested in. But but sort of once in a while, there is. And this one was about the zodiacal light. Um, and uh, there was a paper uh, released on the 9th. And then I sent it to you. And uh, and then when I, I checked my email, you had sent me either that article or a similar one. Because Larry, who's one of our listeners, I think he's in Japan, had sent sent you that or a similar article uh, a few hours before I, I had uh, run across it. So I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it's a great article. Um, uh, do you do you want to talk about it, or do you want yeah. me to talk about? It? I'll I'll talk about it briefly. So, sure. so when we've talked about the zodiacal or zodiacal light um, before, and uh, what was understood um, before was that um, probably what we were seeing is interplanetary dust being illuminated by the sun, and that probably what this is is particles that are uh, sort of in between the planets and leftover remnants from, from the solar system and micrometeorites and parts of comets and all that kind of stuff. Um, but this, uh, th this paper that came out on the 9th uh, by JPL and Jet Propulsion Lab um, is the result of analysis of data that, that came in from the Juno spacecraft. The Juno spacecraft started its mission, I think in 2016. It just got extended to 2025. I sure know what it's like waiting around to, you know, have, have projects extended. So <laughs> I, I know what they're going through. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, but what it discovered is that the zodiacal light might actually be caused more from material coming off of Mars. 
um, than, than from these other particles. So I, I didn't read the, the full paper. I, I don't know the lecture that much time these days, but I was just kind of uh, pretty astounded to think that 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 material that we're looking at might be, uh, you know, com coming off of off of the planet Mars. So anyway, I didn't know yeah. if you, you had anything further to add to that. Yeah, it, it is super interesting. Um, like they they seem quite um, confident that the zodiacal light is Martian dust. Um, what they're not sure though about is how this dust would be able to escape uh, the like Mars's gravity. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to have dust from a planetary body leave the surface of the planet and end up in space, but it usually then just sort of orbits around that planet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I think, the confounding or the part that they, they need to do more research on. But, um, you know, it's pretty profound because, like, like you said, you know, this was thought to be leftover remnants from the formation of the solar system. Um, and now we just think it's... Uh, you know, Recent. From Mars, a very dry, dusty planet. Yeah, yeah recent, recent material. Yeah, mm -hmm. almost, mm -hmm. almost like the opposite. Sort of a little bit of everything left over from billions of years ago to stuff that blew off last week from one <laughs> yeah. planet. I mean, that's yeah. that that's incredible. That's incredible. And you and I have observed the uh, zodiacal light quite a few times together. I think I, yeah. I think now that I think about it, I think I've only observed the zodiacal light with you. Maybe I observed it one other time. But, oh. But, but usually we, we seem to be uh, like kind of ramping up our observing in the spring and then we end up out and then we're like, there's a zodiacal light. You, know, it's yep, like, yep. you can see it quite well here um, from Saskatchewan because the, the skies can be so clear. Um, in other places, like like the way Clark described it in Southern Ontario there, um, where I where maybe I did see it once. I mean, definitely it is more more difficult to see. You're, you're not as... Uh, as high up in altitude here where we observe is between like two and 3000 feet. And here we're often between uh, two and 300 kilometers away from the city. Um, or, or when we are closer, um, it's quite a bit better. Like, so my observing site that's a five minute drive from my house in the city is probably almost, almost as good as the Moncton site um, was uh, the Clark went to, which is more like a, a 25 or 30 minute drive um, from the city that he's in where I used to live uh let's see yeah so so yeah it's it's kind of neat to see that there's this uh this new new information about it so i saw you're having a astro garage sale <laughs> yeah well you know i i buy a lot of gear i sell a lot of gear but usually what happens is i buy you know gear over a period of time and then it just gets to this like critical mass where i have to like purge and just get rid of a lot of stuff so i'm at that critical mass and rather than list like eight or nine items separately, I just said, I'm having an Astro garage sale. Here's a bunch of items. Let me know if you want them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just getting rid of some stuff that it just, it's not going to get used by me. Um, so if it's collecting dust, um, I'd rather it go to a home where somebody will either appreciate it or use it more than I am. And, you know, it allows me to kind of, uh, fund other astronomy projects. Um, that's, mm -hmm. that's one of my ways to kind of, you know, buy some of the stuff that I'm interested in is I, I just cycle through gear, sell some stuff to reinvest it into something else. So I got to ask, you have one of the uh, Borg 1.4 X teleconverter slash extenders. Did yeah. you ever, did you ever try that much? Did you try it on the 50 millimeter or any of your other telescopes or? Yeah. Yeah. I did try it on the 50 um, just because, 
because of like a, like the threading and everything, it just screws right in and away you go. Like it's meant for, what is it? I think the scale on this, like, so it's a variable scale. Um, so it can be used on telescopes from 300 millimeter focal length to 640. Okay. Um, you just pull out this little barrel and it has like um, sort of a friction element to it. So it doesn't just slide freely. Um, now I've read online, like with adapters uh, and again, Borg has a million adapters. Uh, you can end up fitting this on non-Borg telescopes and that it's quite phenomenal. Like some people say it's one of the best teleconverters out there. Um, mm. Like it just disappears in your focal uh, plane. Um, so anyway, I did use it in the 50 very briefly just to see if it would work. Mm. Um, now, I'm not sure exactly how to use it uh, because when I set it, so the focal length of the 50 is 250 millimeters. Yeah. So I set this thing to the maximum or sorry, I, I don't know how you'd view it, but I think I, I thought I had set this thing to 300 millimeter focal length. Um, put it into the little board, didn't work. Couldn't, could not achieve focus. Oh. Changed this to what I thought was the 640 millimeter focal length and it worked great. So, oh. so maybe I'm reading the scale backwards. Uh, I don't know. Um, but anyway, the, uh, it did work and it worked well. It really like, because that little Borg is an F5, this really flattened the field a lot. Yeah. Um, but it also, you know, you know, 1.4 times you, you lose a little bit of the wide field aspect but you know it probably went from like you know seven and a half or eight degrees down to like six and a half degrees which is still a phenomenal field yeah because you'd be with the uh with that scope in its uh, original format it's f5 but with that in it if it's 1.4 i think you'd end up at f7 or something like that yeah yeah that would be right i think Huh. And could you still use two inch eyepieces with it or were you stuck back down to one? Oh, um, no, you could use two inch eyepieces with it. Um, uh -huh. I didn't, I never tried that. Now you'd have to look at this thing. So the barrel of this is probably a little bit, well, it's probably right around inch and a quarter actually. Um, so I don't know if a two inch eyepiece would vignette in, uh, in this, I kind of think it would, I think you'd lose some of the edge brightness because it yeah. really narrows that, uh, that light path, but you know, the, the two inch eyepiece works in the, in that mini Borg, but it's so impractical because of how, how you lose balance on that thing. Like just, just attaching a two inch diagonal to that little telescope makes it almost impossible to balance. Never mind throwing an eyepiece in there. Um, uh, I just like, it's, it's doable and it's kind of a neat little thing, but I, oh geez, my dog's rubbing against the microphone stand. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered what that was. Yeah. She, she has a cone on right now. So uh, she's a little wider than usual, but anyway, um, yeah, the little Borg with a two inch eyepiece is pretty cool. You know, you're getting like close to 10 degrees. If you have, you know, like a, one of the wider two inch field, uh, two inch fields available, Yep. Um, but my thought was if I use the 24 pan optic, I'm getting like, I think seven and a half or eight degrees. Like it's not much smaller, but then it's just so much more usable because the weight aspect, uh, or the balance aspect isn't a problem anymore. Hmm. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah. Selling the teleconverter selling, I have two of those mini 50 Borgs selling one of those. Uh, I've sold a bunch of the eyepieces already, uh, a Vixen 40 millimeter Kellner, a Vixen 28 millimeter Kellner, 
two of my Takahashi orthos, uh, 12.5 and an 18 millimeter. Um, and I think I'm going to be selling the 40 millimeter, um, as a result. So yeah, I'm kind of flying through the gear. Um, I also posted my, my very rare TS 65, the, the Takahashi 65 millimeter. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, uh, it's again, it collects dust. It's not getting used. Um, you know, there's some things I wouldn't mind purchasing. So, you know, if somebody else would value this, you know, greater than me or, or put, uh, put, put it under the stars and actually use it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be awesome. So the problem yeah. with it is it's big, it's heavy and shipping something like that is not really what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of hoping to find somebody that is, you know, somewhat localish, <laughs> meaning I don't mind driving a little ways to deliver it, but, um, with, mm-hmm. with a telescope like that, you know, it's kind of a niche audience. Not everybody's interested in a telescope from the early seventies, uh, that has a real long focal length. So, you know, it might be hard to actually find somebody that wants that, uh, that mm-hmm. also lives closely. I think if I posted it on Astromart, uh, it would sell within minutes because it is a very rare, desirable telescope. It's just the audience yeah. for that telescope is quite small. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, th- that's some interesting stuff. That's some interesting stuff. It's, it's a great service that you're doing to the North American astronomical community by <laughs> importing these, these fine Japanese goods. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also made a trade actually. I was oh. about to list. Yeah. I, I have a Nikon 12.5 millimeter orthoscopic eyepiece. Again, very rare. Oh I yeah. I see those over here very often. Um, no. but but like I, I have a number of these Pentex SMC orthos. I have a, a six millimeter, uh, the nine millimeter, uh, the 18 millimeter, and then I have the 40 millimeter Kellner, which is part of that set. Um, so I've just had a desire to have the 12 millimeter Pentex SMC ortho, um, mm-hmm. just to, for no other reason than it's part of the set. And, um, well, and also, I guess I should say that the Pentex SMC orthos are, very well renowned, um, as high quality eyepieces. Uh, so anyway, I had an ad up to trade my 12 and a half Nikon, uh, for one of the SMC Pentex orthos for the 12 millimeter. And, uh, somebody contacted me and I should have the, the, uh, the 12 millimeter Pentex on Wednesday. And nice. I'll be sending the Nikon to that individual. And I'm excited for that. Wow. That's exciting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. Huh? Neat. Well, uh, my astronomy class is, is halfway done now. <laughs> so that's the pleasure of doing a four-week course. There's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because, uh, I, to be honest, I find the eight weeks are, are a little bit long. And so this is a yeah. course I teach. I volunteer to teach it. So it's not really part of my um, regular workload. It's, it's something I do as, I was going to say community service, but that has a negative connotation these days, but I suppose it's <laughs> That's what it is. Um, it's not court ordered. Um, no, I, I love doing it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It really is a lot of fun. But if I'm when I'm doing the eight weeks, by about week six, my the fun level starts dropping off a little bit for me. It just starts mm-hmm. to seem a little bit long. And I kind of get that sense from people too, right? So why, why, why are we doing eight weeks when, when people are, are more interested in five or so weeks? But the, but the university only really does four, like, eight-week courses. So, so we're starting to play around with it. 
um, a little bit more as, as we get into into spring here. Um, and simply, I think, because it's actually popular enough uh, that uh, that they're willing to kind of uh, negotiate on on how many days. I think probably like the ideal would be five or six weeks because I could do one one week that's like an introduction and like I guess if I did six weeks and I could get a guest speaker for one week I think that would be that would be the the Goldilocks zone for, for the length of time to do to do one of these but in instead what we're going to do is we're doing this one is four weeks then we're doing uh, a two-week one in the spring which is just like introduction to astronomy and then we're going to do four weeks in May and uh, and so then we're going to kind of go back to to their own drawing board uh, maybe a little bit next year so i'm kind of hoping maybe maybe i can convince them to do six week sessions start it in uh in like very early september or something like that run it for six weeks do six weeks in in the winter and then and then maybe just do uh do like a real short one in the spring i was i was gonna do another one in august so i did one in august last year which was really that was like the most popular one i think i ever uh, hosted or, or maybe it was the second most popular. I think I had like 38 people in it and then um, was talking to the Grasslands National Park and uh, we're waiting to hear on the restrictions being lifted um, for the parks so we have to make a plan so we're making a plan for August right now and I have to maybe talk to you a little bit about that Shane to see if uh, if if maybe uh, maybe that's something something doable so anyway it's it's kind of exciting um, to be thinking about actually getting out and, uh, and doing some sky tours. So, so they were talking about doing it, you know, earlier than later. And then there's, there's a lot of moving, um, components and, and, uh, the virus and vaccinations and all this to, to attend to. So, uh, we started saying, okay, well, maybe we should just focus on August because that'll be the longest length of time and give us the best opportunity at, uh, at hopefully, hosting some, some successful events. So, but, but we'll see it's, it's early days yet in the end of this pandemic, but, uh, but it's great to, to kind of be planning for, for uh, you know, what we're going to be doing after that. Um, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is exciting. And uh, I just, I, like you said, I can't wait to get out to do some observing. Yeah. And uh, this is it's just fun to be talking to the grasslands again. And, you know, I, I have a, a good feeling anyway or maybe it's just a hopeful feeling that we'll be back down there this year and, and get some really good observing done yeah i i hope so too i i plan to spend a, a fair bit of time there uh this this coming year so uh so it's great to be uh to be chatting with them they're always just excellent to to do stuff with and uh and again i mean i mean really it's something that we we do just for fun and uh yeah we'll, we'll see we'll see what it looks like like originally they were talking that it would just be like I think they said for some reason I have in my mind like 21 attendees <laughs> and so it could be could be extremely scaled back um yeah, if, yeah. if it happens if it happens at all I think really probably what they're they're looking to do is just start getting events on, on the books again and uh and then going going from there so but uh you know we'll, I, I imagine we were talking about like how we could do it with different protocols in place so that was kind of interesting too so you know um there's, there's different things that we can do very, very safely. Keep, keep in mind that we're, we're outdoors in a, in an environment that uh, things struggle to survive. In. So um, yeah, I think that uh, it, it should be fairly, uh, fairly safe by August, especially if, if uh, it seems like we're going to get the vaccine here uh, in the next couple months. 
anyway. So I should say we had the vaccine here now. They've already delivered it to almost 10% of the population here in, in the area we live in. In mm-hmm. fact, I think, in, I think in Regina, 10% have, have received it and they're queuing up the cars for tomorrow. Like it's going to be a big, big push here over the next couple months. So mm-hmm. fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And I edited my RASC April journal. So the uh, journal comes out in April. It's now free to all, I guess. It's pretty cool. It used to be behind, uh, not a paywall, but it, it's behind like a, it was behind like a login. You had to be a member to get access. But now anybody can go to rasc.ca and read the RASC journal. It's under publications and journal. And uh, yeah, so I wrote an article on web, had a few small edits to make there. And I bought a book on web. It's called The Stargazer of Hardwick. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, So Webb was an observer in the UK and uh, there wasn't that much written on his life. So he wrote this book called Celestial Objects for Common Telescopes, volumes uh, eventually split into volumes one and two by Margaret Mail back in uh, in the late, early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, published in 62 as the final edition. But um, as far as like Webb's life and that, pretty pretty scant resources. But then apparently um, the individuals who, who bought his, uh, I think it's a couple, who bought his uh, old uh, rectory um, in in that area of, uh, I guess, because it's Hardwick, um, apparently all his notes and that were there and they became quite fast. They, they weren't amateur astronomers or astronomers or they, they were more like history buffs. And so they started gathering them together and transcribing them. And then they contacted a bunch of uh, astronomy writers and uh, got them to write different sections. And so there's, there's this book with uh, I think about 10 or 12 sections. And it's fascinating because like I was trying to find uh, details on his telescopes and it's, it's difficult. Like, you know, I was telling you before we started the podcast, I'm trying to find like an eyepiece that would help me emulate what uh, what he was using for an eyepiece, at least for for field of view. Anyway, I should should qualify that. I'm not sure if I'm going to get like a really antiquated Erfel or Kellner or whatever, but but I just want to try to try to approximate his his field of view anyway. Um, and I think this will help me out because it, it actually has like gross details um, on all all that information. Whereas his book is more like an observing book, meaning that you would take it out with you to the telescope and your chart and you would just have your chart and the book and you would just kind of, all right, what's up in, you know, cancer, the crab, we're going to talk about cancer here in the next podcast. And you just kind of go through that and, and kind of line it up with your, it it was sort of like your sticky notes, right? That's kind of what it was designed to be kind of, that's what gave me the idea to do that. Um, But he he wasn't really long on writing. Like, (laughs) you know, a lot of these, um, popularizers of astronomy that they wrote scads of sort of colorful and, and flower language, but, uh, but he just wrote these very brief, um, but beautifully accurate descriptions. And, uh, anyway, it's, it's kind of neat to be sort of, sort of working through this, but like, I, I know when I got my article back, I'm like, Oh yeah, I made a mistake there and I probably made some other mistakes. So this is going to be a mistake ridden article, no matter what happens. I just don't have time to, uh, to sit and do all the edits that I wish I, I could do. It's uh, yeah, for one of, for one of time, but I'm hope, hoping that in the, in the coming uh, months, I think probably by the time uh, we get vaccinated, <laughs> knock on wood, I'm kind of mm-hmm. hoping that um, I'm able to uh, better manage my, my workload at, at work, which has been uh, 
a little bit challenging the past uh, year, you know, since since we went into the the uh, pandemic uh, time, uh, just for a variety of reasons, it became um, very busy for me, especially the past five months. So fingers crossed on, on better times ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you've got some thank yous, I think. We, we yeah. thank Clark for his for his contribution. We thank everybody. Like people wrote us, uh, Phil wrote us a, a congratulations on reaching 100. Um, appreciate that. You know, we've also had, um, you know, I, I think uh, several hundred people regularly listen to these episodes now. I think we're up to about 300 or more people that will download it within the first two or three days, which is amazing. And we've had over um, 28,000 downloads now of, of the podcast, I think, as of this morning. So that's very exciting. Um, mm. And then also we have our Patreon users. And go ahead, Shane, you've, you've got some notes there, I think, on this. Yeah. Um, so we, we just we have a new patron, uh, Joseph. So thank you very much for uh, your support of the podcast. We do appreciate it. It helps us out with some expenses and, and uh, you know, allows us to kind of evolve this thing that we're doing and hopefully make it a little bit better. So we really appreciate that. And uh, one other thing, uh, you mentioned Phil sent us uh, like a congrats on episode 100. He also included a, a book review. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it yet, Chris, but I haven't because uh, I just got it last night. And yeah, yeah. No want of time these days. Yeah. Yeah. So just a, a summary here. Um, Phil has acquired a book. It's called Map of the Moon by Hugh Wilkins. And what's really interesting about this is it's uh, it's a hand-drawn map. So, so Hugh Wilkins, uh, his lifetime was 1896 to 1960. And um, I, I think he spent a considerable amount of time, maybe his entire life, I'm not sure, uh, but, but observing the moon and sketching it in great detail. He mm. ended up producing a map that was 300 inches in diameter uh, of the moon. And, and again, in, in really good detail. Uh, it ended up being purchased by NASA because it, at the time, um, you know, before there was uh, lunar orbiters mapping the moon, this was the best or one of the best uh, references available for lunar features. Wow. That's like, um, sorry, that's like 25 feet, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah. It's, it's massive. Um, one, 100th scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was first published in 1946 as a 100 inch diameter reproduction. Um, but anyway, it, it's, it's available now. It looks like it was re-released in 2020. It's 120 pages. Um, I, I went on to Amazon. Uh, it looks like, like we can pre-order it. I don't know if there's like a new version coming out or what, but it's 20 Canadian dollars. Um, oh, it's wow. quite affordable. And one of the things that Phil said is that if you're into sketching, this is just a phenomenal book for that because it's hmm. a sketch of the moon. Um, so wow. I'm quite excited to receive it. It sounds like a great book. Um, and, you know, at that price, it's, that's a great buy, you know, the, the atlases and various things like that in this hobby, um, sometimes start expensive and end really expensive when they go out of production. So being able to, to get something at, you know, $20 is, uh, to me, uh, a pretty good buy. So just thought I'd throw that out there too. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.